screw your freedom. Welcome to the podcast, Rudy's Revelation. It's Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Today is the Sunday Review. So in the Sunday Review, we're going to be tearing into the Sunday New York Times showing how the newspaper continually mischaracterizes the facts and mislead the public. We're also going to be checking in on CBS Face the Nation where Ohio Representative Mike Turner, who's on the Intelligence Oversight Committee, will talk about the affidavit and why it may or may not show Probable cause for the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Also be looking at Sunday morning propaganda in a piece by Lee Cowan, who tries to deflect information about chemicals in our environment. Got all this coming up right now. Our first story up from the... New York Times, the Sunday New York Times, dairy farmers in the Netherlands are up in arms over emission cuts. Now, this is typical of the New York Times because uh, their headline goes on to say, goals of cutting nitrogen emissions in half by 2030 have caused an uproar in the Netherlands. Climate activists say the cuts are necessary to preserve nature. But what they're not getting to is the livelihood of the farmers in this article by Claire Moses. What they don't talk about is the amount of milk the Netherlands produces and whether or not these cuts are going to affect global or cause global dairy shortages. Ms. Moses goes on to write, all of, the, all of this comes as wrenching change in the Netherlands where dairy farms have long been as much of the national identity as the country's windmills and canals. It is also a major producer and exporter of milk and milk products. Last year, it sent 8.2 billion euros worth of dairy products abroad and produced a total of 13.8 billion kilos of milk. So you're going to curb agricultural output. Now, I'm not condoning overuse of nitrogen fertilizers, but chemical fertilizers have helped civilization grow over the centuries. And in particular, over the last few decades. So there's going to be an unforeseen consequence of these environmental cuts. Moving on to the next story, how a storied phrase became a partisan battleground, a touchstone of political and social discourse. The nearly 100-year-old phrase, the American dream, is being repurposed. Critics say distorted, particularly by Republicans of color. 
Now, what they're getting at, at this article by Jasmine Aloa, is for decades, politicians, I'm just going to read from the article here, for decades, politicians have used the phrase the American dream to describe a promise of economic opportunity and upward mobility of prosperity through hard work. It has been a promise so powerful that it drew immigrants from around the world who went on to fulfill the, it generation after generation. Political figures of both parties employed the phrase to promote their own policies and their own biographies. Now, a new crop of Republican candidates and elected officials are using the phrase in a different way. Invoking the same promise, but arguing in speeches, ads, and mailings that the American dream is dying or in danger. Threatened by what they see as rampant crime, unchecked illegal immigration, burdensome government uh, regulations, and liberal social policies. Many of these Republicans are people of color, including immigrants and the children of immigrants, for whom the phrase first popularized in 1931 has a deep resonance. I just want to show one thing here is what they say to describe a promise of economic opportunity and upward mobility, prosperity through hard work. That is what's in danger. Why? Threatened by what what they see, not that's proven fact, rampant crime, unchecked illegal immigration, burdensome government revela- uh, regulations, and liberal social policies. What they say. So basically what has been a saying in America, the American dream, where your individual liberties allow you to do what you see fit to fulfill your destiny, now is being hijacked by Republicans of color. Why? Because Democratic policies and the policies of the Democratic National Committee are failing. And everyone can see that. You can gloss over it in the mainstream media as much as you want, but all the policies, all the foreign wars, um, particularly the economic policies, but also um, the stance on crime and all these things. Um, It's making it harder and harder in America to uh, achieve what people are really looking for is economic independence. And they're trying to make it racial by saying Republicans of color. I'm not going to go into their argument, but you can see how they mischaracterize, you know, even that basic phrase. The next story up today is um, a migrant wave tests New York City's identity as a world's sanctuary. New York wants to become, wants to welcome new immigrants. Its economic and vibrancy depend on them, but an influx has strained a social safety net already on the brink. Now, as we talked about Just a second ago in that last article, unchecked immigration is not good. It's not good for the people that already live here. I understand people of poor means want to get into this country because they want to, they want the American dream. And I, we, everybody understands that, but unchecked immigration is bad for the people that already live here, just on an economic level. So this article goes on to say, uh, this article by Andy Newman and Rial Vichy, the influx of immigrants to the cities, to the city this spring and summer, most fleeing crime and cratering economies in Central and South America. 
fleeing crime. So their countries are in bad shape and they're coming here. Not It doesn't say anything about political asylum. They're not being persecuted for their political stance in their, and that's what asylum is. If you have a certain political stance and the government is threatening you, then you can apply for a political asylum or asylum. So it has tested New York's reputation as a world sanctuary and it shows no sign of slowing. Of course not, because the Democrats' border policy is what's causing it. But thanks in part to Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, whose decision to send busload after busload to Washington, New York, to goad Democrats on border policy has helped turn the normal north-flowing river of humanity into a wave, just like the southern states are seeing wave after wave after wave. Everyone is seeing the, the immigrants. The point behind this, what Abbott is trying to do, is to show the Democratic states, or in the case of the District of Columbia, that this influx, unchecked immigration, is a burden. And now, after busload and busload are coming from Texas, sent by Governor Abbott, and I'm sure there are additional busloads already being sent to New York, uh, the mayor of New York City, Adams, Eric Adams, is protesting and saying, wait a second here, we don't, it's straining the social services of the city. And it's a burden for the people that already live here, particularly unskilled workers that already live in the city. It's going to drive down wages and it's going to take jobs by these new illegal immigrants. Not surprising. But, you know, they paint it uh, as some sort of, you know, uh, Abbott's political stunt. Oh, it's all because of Abbott's political stunt and it may be a political stunt, but unchecked immigration has consequences. And it's about time that liberal, you know, if you want to be a sanctuary city, then you can take uh, the 2 million illegal immigrants that have crossed the border. Maybe they should go right to San Francisco or New York. Imagine that, 500,000 in each city. Talk about a burden. The final days of Trump White House, chaos and scattered papers. Government documents that Donald J. Trump had accumulated with him in roughly two dozen boxes in the White House residence They were to go to the National Archives, but at least some ended up in Florida. We all know what they're trying to do here. They're preparing the way for the affidavit, which is going to say, oh, it was just some sort of clerical uh, filing mistake. They took boxes that they probably shouldn't have took, even though they had the legal right to take them. And he, uh, the President Trump, president at the time, has the right to declassify any documents he sees fit And we'll see later when we hear from Mike Turner why presidents, all presidents of the past, have left with documents to shore up their legacy. That's just the nature of the job. And since you can take whatever you want, I mean, within reason, we're going to see that this whole hullabaloo created by the FBI had, there's not much to it. And so, of course, this is written partially by Maggie Haberman, Where all the material ended up is not clear. What is plain, though, is that Mr. Trump's haphazard handling, that's the mischaracterization, of government documents, and compared to who? 
like Obama didn't haphazardly put things together. First of all, Trump thought he won, and most indications were that he did, so he wasn't really prepared to leave the White House if you think you won the election. But in any case, this haphazard handling of the government documents, a chronic problem, and at least they're honest here by saying chronic problem, which means this happens with all presidents, contributed, not chronic to Trump administration, but to all presidents, contributed to the chaos he created after he refused to accept his loss in November 2020. And this is the fact, what I was just explaining is he didn't think he was leaving the White House because he indubitably won. So he unleashed a mob on Congress that set the stage. So in this paragraph, they had to put something about January 6th in here. And he unleashed a mob on Congress and set stage for the second impeachment. His unwillingness to let let go of power, which isn't the case because there was no, they didn't have to take him out in handcuffs, he left including refusing to return government documents collected while he was in office, has led to a potentially damaging and entirely avoidable legal battle that threatens to engulf the former president and some of his aides. Now, here they're softening the tone that after they said, oh, he took nuclear secrets to share with adversaries, you know, those kind of a- uh, accusations that are completely unfounded because we don't even know what's in there. We don't, but when the affidavit is released, you're going to see that there was some sort of maybe seen as a clerical error, error, but certainly didn't warrant a raid. And we'll hear more of that um, by, from Mike Turner. So moving right along, uh, this is from the style section, looking for love in the metaverse. I'm not going to go too far into this one. Avatars, dating services, and phantom touch what it's like to date in virtual reality. Virtual reality isn't a date. It's, you know, the internet is creepy enough. And now you put this stuff in here. On our first date, Cece and I met on a floating platform suspended in the middle of a distant galaxy. Galaxy. What, what is this? This is just, are people that sucked into the internet now that they, you know, you can't break away and, you know, go on a regular date? It just, it's so weird. Why would you go on a date with phantom touch and all this nonsense? This is just a setup and they're promoting in the style section of the Sunday New York Times, they're promoting this kind of virtual dating. Too weird. Now this is what I want to get to, opinion, this opinion piece. The constitution is broken and should not be reclaimed. Now this is by... Uh, they t- two, two professors that teach law, one at Harvard, one at Yale, a Ryan Doffler and a Samuel Moyne. And they go after, as many Democrats, and if people didn't know, this is the difference between Democrats and Republicans. We're a constitutional republic. And so that's what Republican means, is that you believe more in a constitutional republic than you do in, in, in direct democracy. So the advocates for direct democracy, like Mr. Doffler and Mr. Moyne, they think that uh, the Constitution is an outdated document. So you get rid of the Constitution, everything's going to be great, you have more direct democracy, but we're a constitutional republic. So just say where the nation was formed on the ideals lined out in this document. And they say, no, just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. And so they go on to write here, 
But constitutions, especially the broken one we have now, inevitably orient us to the past and misdirect the present into a dispute over what people agreed on once upon a time. Like in fairyland. This isn't fairyland. This actually happened several hundred years ago. Not in what the president and future demand for and what from those who live now. This aids the right, which insists on sticking with what it claims to be the original meaning of the past. And this is just verbal gobbledygook. The reality here is the Constitution was born out of Enlightenment thinking. And Enlightenment thinking is what brought us out of medieval thinking and dark thinking and barbaric thinking and... The Enlightenment was one of the things that brought an end to human slavery. But they don't they disregard all that and disregard the seeking and instituting of individual freedoms. A person with no political power is guaranteed what they said by our creator that every person should be free. And be endowed with certain individual liberties. And the Constitution codifies those rights endowed to us by our Creator. What the hell's wrong with that? No, 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 the, the Constitution is out of date. Explain, they don't explain how the Constitution is out of date. They don't go into why the Constitution is out of date. Such exercises in progressive constitutionalism call on Congress and other non-judicial actors to claim some amount of authority to interpret the Constitution for themselves. It's all word, it's all a word game. Semantics. To seek real freedom, we must use procedures consistent with popular rule. Popular rule doesn't guarantee political rights political liberties to the individual. You don't want popular rule. You can have democracy or populist candidates. There's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, is all the politicians swear an oath to the Constitution. So what are they going to swear an oath to now? Some sort of Overton window of morality? It just, it doesn't work. We were a constitutional republic. We're a democratic constitutional republic. So the basis of this country is the constitution. You can't just get rid of it, and I don't know where these people are coming from. They're coming from the idea of democracy. That's why democracy is wrong. It's not wrong. I'm not against referendum. I'm not against electing people. But popular rule invokes mob rule. And if there isn't some sort of restraint against mob rule, you're going to have problems, especially for the smallest minority, which is the individual. So we're going to move along now to um, Mike Turner, who's going to explain basically why the FBI was wrong um, and the judge was wrong issuing a warrant to raid Mar-a-Lago, which was an unprecedented law enforcement action against a former president. And I doubt we'll see anything 
that will be able, any facts or anything will be able to glean probable cause out of the affidavit. But I think this is all construct too because um, the media was calling for it. So we'll see. But let's listen to uh, Mike Turner, representative from Ohio, who uh, sits on the Intelligence Oversight Committee, and he's going to give us the Republican viewpoint on the affidavit. Welcome back to Face the Nation. I'm Ed O'Keefe in this morning for Margaret Brennan. We turn now to the FBI search at former President Trump's Florida resort. Now, what's important about this affidavit is it will give us the information to understand how did the FBI justify <clears throat> raiding Marlargo and spending nine hours in the president's house uh, when we know the former president's home, they had other options besides just raiding the house. They could have gone and asked for the subpoena to be enforced. And the mystery sort of here deepens because we know Attorney General Garland himself has taken responsibility, said he approved it. And the American public want the Attorney General focused on issues like human and drug smuggling at the border. They were Chinese espionage, uh, out of control crime in our cities. But if it's if, if it, you're going to turn to this, if you're going to turn to the former president what? and Mar-Largo, they want to make certain that this is to the highest level. There's an imminent national security threat. And this affidavit will tell us, did they even allege so? Because in their document trying to keep the affidavit sealed, they didn't even allege that there was a national security threat. Well, I think uh, you know, you're citing polls, and there are lots of polls out there, by the way. The polls also indicate that people want to make certain that, that if this is an imminent national security threat, uh, that it's pursued. But also, they want to make certain that you don't have um, abusive discretion here. And what our concern is from our committee is there's an, an allegation of classified documents that falls within our jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And show us what you found, because the affidavit's going to have them tell publicly now what they told the court they were going to go find. Show us what you found. It certainly won't affect the investigation. We deal with classified documents and information all the time. Show us what it is that you went into the president's uh, residence, spent nine hours at you know, former President Trump's residence. What is it that was at a, an imminent national security threat that you didn't just go to court and ask the court to, to order that the documents be delivered to them? Why did they spend nine? And just think of the resources of 30 agents that spent nine hours in the preparation for that. When we have real imminent national security threats like Chinese espionage, the border, issues, that things that are going on in Ukraine, to take these resources and apply them here, certainly the American public wants to make certain this is not an abuse of discretion. Well, I'm, I'm curious, since you're a member of the Intelligence Committee, what use could a former president have for classified or top secret information once he's left office? Why, why bring it home in the floor? Well, it's, I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but certainly we all know that every former president has access to uh, their documents. It's how they write their memoirs. They don't have ac you know, great recall of everything that's occurred in their administration. And we don't know that they were uh, that they're classified. We know, according to the FBI documents, that they were they were uh, identified as marked classified. Uh, you have, of course, the former president saying that he declassified them themselves. But I think what's important here about this abuse of discretion, we have evidence of the FBI abusing that discretion and of misconduct on behalf of the FBI. The FBI, um, you know, we had an attorney for the FBI that actually was convicted of doctoring an email to obtain a warrant against, uh, the, against Trump. There's a Trump's organization. You have the, um, the FBI using the Russia dossier, uh, which has been proven to be debunked as evidence under a warrant that they submitted, both all of which CBS has reported, and I have them up on my website, your own stories of these abuses of discretion. And the other question that we have is, is just recently, uh, there was a raid on Project Veritas, which is a news organization to supposedly retrieve President Biden's daughter's diary. Now, that's not certainly an 
imminent national security threat. It might be embarrassing to the president, but it's not something you'd see them do for an ordinary citizen. So there are real questions as, what is the FBI doing here? When they undertake a raid against the current president's political rival, you have to ask these questions. You know, as I said from the beginning, is what I think we want Attorney General Garland to be focusing on instead of Marlargo is Chinese espionage. What's going on at the border with human and drug smuggling and how it's affecting our families? And of course, there's always the issue of the you know, spiraling crime that's occurring in, in our cities. And how can we impact that? How can we ensure that we have the right uh, tools and information about any foreign influence that might be impacting that? Yeah, Mike Turner from Ohio there um, laying down the facts. Um, we got bigger fish to fry. This is obviously politically motivated. Um, you know, looks like shit, tastes like shit, smells like shit. It's shit. It's, it's uh, using state power for political purposes. That's why people are calling it Banana Republic. Okay, next I want to go to um, this piece by Lee Cowan, um, which is basically corporations control government. Corporations are polluting our food, our water, our air, uh, making it toxic. I mean, this is this is nothing new, and we've heard a lot about microplastics, but these are all petrochemicals, and they throw up a graphic here showing hydrogen and carbon, you know, part of the compound. Those parts of the compound aren't the problem. It's fluorine and fluorite and fluoride and all the things that they've been pumping into our environment for years and years and years. It's, uh, you know, it's terrible for your endocrine system, your sexuality, uh, it affects your hormones, all these things. And they, you know, they go on polluting our air and water uh, without consequence. Well, you know, why is that a surprise? Um, it, it really isn't. And uh, they don't care because they want us to be poisoned. Uh, okay, so here is uh, Lee Cowan with this report on what they call PFAS, which are uh, petrochemicals, uh, particularly like Teflon and things like that, that um, are toxic. PFAS is an acronym for a family of man-made compounds called per- and polyfluoroalkali substances. The CDC has listed a host of health effects believed to be associated with exposure to those chemicals, including cancer, liver damage, increased cholesterol, and a lot more. The chemicals are so highly mobile, they're not only being found in soil and groundwater, but in the atmosphere, too. In fact, they've even been detected in raindrops, falling in some of the most remote areas of the world. PFAS are basically impossible to escape, and scientists say they are likely here to stay. They are nearly indestructible. You just can't get rid of them. You can't get rid of them. A lot of chemicals, when they go into your body or when they end up in the environment, they break down, they slowly decompose. PFAS don't do that. Once you put PFAS somewhere, it's going to stay there practically forever. That means the levels of these so-called forever chemicals can build up and linger in our bloodstreams forever. PFAS contamination is really a national crisis, and the real scale of contamination is, is staggering. The more we test, the more we find it. Melanie Benish, legislative attorney at the Environmental Working Group in Washington, says thousands of sites nationwide are polluted with PFAS, and she lays the blame for that growing crisis squarely at the feet of the companies who invented the chemicals in the first place. 
it is the manufacturers like DuPont and 3M who have gotten us here today. So they've known for 70 years that they were poisoning the water and they didn't tell the EPA, they didn't tell their neighbors, they didn't tell their workers, they didn't tell anyone because they were making too much money. In the last two decades, thousands of lawsuits have been brought against the manufacturers for allegedly knowing PFAS chemicals were dangerous. There has also been regulatory failure. The FDA, new in the 1960s, the Department of Defense, new in the 1970s, the EPA has known since at least the 90s, and they didn't treat the issue with the amount of urgency that it needed. DuPont and 3M phased out two of the PFAS suspected of being the most harmful, but they still manufacture others. In fact, there are thousands of variants. Many of them have real similarities that make it very likely that one is just as toxic as the other. A new PFAS called Gen X was clearly present in the water. I should be able to enjoy a shower and not worry that it's going to give me or my kids cancer. So there's really no way for the average American to know if it's even in their drinking water right now or in their food or in their air. Based on what it called new evidence, this past June, the EPA did update its drinking water advisories about PFAS, warning that even the tiniest amounts over a lifetime may be enough to cause negative health effects in humans. How much of any PFAS is present in the food? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's corporations. They make a lot of money doing something harmful. They take that money, they use it to purchase political power. So they poison us and they buy the government. And they, you know, obviously keep the government from regulating them. So it, it, it's, it's quite a level of corporatocracy. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Getter and Minds. See you tomorrow. This is conspiracy. That's what this is. <laughs>